Welcome to the Oil Can Podcast. I am Jonathan Willis, and I'm hosting this week. Joining me is Daniel Nugent Bowman. How are you, Daniel? I'm well. It's good to, to be on and actually be able to talk some semblance of hockey and instead of uh, looking at various corners of, of the, the apartment I live in. So I'm really looking forward to actually doing some work today. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been 10 days since our last show, so it's been a little while. And, uh, you know, we, we had Ken Holland on before and, and we thought, how could we follow that up? And uh, after much persuading, we... Yeah, uh, or after much searching, I should say, because not persuading, because he agreed right away. But uh, we're we're very happy to have Louis DeBrusque with us as a special guest. How are you, Louis? Hey guys, I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Uh, Doing good. I think we're uh, we're all just sort of um, taking in events. Uh, I I guess it's quite a transition for you in particular. You would be on the road uh, covering for for Sportsnet for Hockey Night in Canada and instead you I, I imagine you're you're confined to, to Edmonton yep yep <laughs> I've been uh, been home for the last couple of weeks actually I just uh, really haven't done a whole lot to be honest I'm um, taking this quarantine thing fairly seriously and trying to uh, minimize my footprint as much as possible and do what I can because I can because I'm home and that's that's where I am right now but yeah, you know, it's amazing. We were talking before we came on the air here about, uh, you know, you learn things about the environment you live in pretty quickly and, you know, how badly we'd like to be in a hockey rink right now. You know, that last month and a bit can be a grind at times for the players, um, for, for the media covering, you know, it's the end of the season, getting prepared for the playoffs, you're getting psyched up for that. But we would love to have that last six, six weeks back for sure. And hopefully, you know, staying positively, staying positive, uh, I should say, maybe we will. You never know. You, Louis, you said you're, you're, you're not doing a whole lot right now, but but what does a, a day in the life of Louis DeBrusque uh, <laughs> look like right now? Are you are you playing lots of cards? Are you, are you have you become yep. a chef? Or what, what, are you, what are you doing? A little bit of everything. You know what? Uh, no question about it. I, uh, you know, I've kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. My dog, uh, you know, thinks that my sole purpose in life is to get up and walk him five times a day. <laughs> he... Uh, He's been, you know, and now he's he's under my desk right now, looking up at me, going, you know, it's been two hours. Aren't we going out again? So I've been trying to walk him on a regular basis just to get some fresh air and get out of the pass. Uh, even when it's minus twelve or whatever, minus eighteen with the wind chill, he loves it out there. So it's it's a good little uh, escape to get out there and go for a nice little walk. But yes, we've been playing cards. Unfortunately, I haven't been winning many cards. My daughter and my wife have been beating me at crib, which I'm not very happy about. <laughs> Um, so I have to up my game in that regard. They've, they've kind of owned the board a little bit and I need to get back to my winning ways in that regard. But, uh, yeah, you know, watch a lot of TV, certainly trying some cooking things out, uh, watch a lot of videos, trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. So, you know, unfortunately throughout the season, we watch a lot of series and a lot of movies while we travel. We're on airplanes, we're on buses, we're in hotels. So we're constantly kind of looking for new material to watch other than hockey games, which takes up a lot of our time. But uh, I'm kind of looking for a good series right now. And somebody had just mentioned the series Hunters to me. So maybe I'll, I'll dive into that a little bit with Al Pacino. You can't really go wrong with Al Pacino. So we'll see how that turns out. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love I love cribbage. So, I, you know, I, I, I envy that. And it seems like with Netflix, you can spend more time kind of looking for things to watch than you do actually watching. I, so. I finally mastered the menu. I think I've got that <laughs> down to a science now. I can pretty much get to anywhere I want to go pretty quickly. It took me a while to figure it out, but yeah, you're right. Um, we're going to become professionals at that, but you know what, to be honest with you guys, just trying to find things to pass the time. Actually, uh, my wife got a Peloton for Christmas from my son, so I finally, she got me some uh, some shoes for my birthday, which was yesterday, so she... I, 
she kind of egged me on, kind of edged me on to go onto that uh, Peloton, and I did a pretty hard workout yesterday on that. And uh, I'm not gonna lie to you, it kind of kicked my butt a little bit. I was surprised. So, um, the trainer that I picked, I picked it for the music. You can pick a whole bunch of different scenarios and training sessions, and I picked it because it was '80s music and it was rock. And I said, okay, that sounds good to me. Let's go. And he proceeded to uh, do a do a sprint and hill course with me for 35 minutes and I had to lay down afterwards. I was a little lightheaded, but it felt good to feel that pain. So I think I'm going to jump back on there again today. So just trying to stay active, trying to stay busy, keep myself in a little bit of shape, mentally trying to stay sharp, playing games, watching. And you know what, listen, this is a trying time for everybody. Everybody's trying to stay positive and just make sure they're doing their part to try and get through this as safely and quickly as possible. And, and we're no different here. We're trying to do the same. Your uh, your answer there kind of led me into the what we were going to talk about next. So it's it's kind of like you're uh, like you're, you're part of the show here. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about you know, obviously you're a long you were a long time player, 400 games in the NHL. Uh, but you know these players are under quarantine and, and they're not you know skating at least to you know that that we know of. And um, you know there there are lockouts in, in the NHL, uh, but they could they could train and skate more appropriately what we don't know when obviously the the nhl is going to resume but when it does what what would that look like for a player i mean how what is a kind of a realistic timeline for for you know when the league says we can get going uh for for the players to kind of get up to speed and what would that look like in your opinion well that's a good question you know i i truly don't know when it's going to be it's going to totally depend on how things go globally it's going to totally depend on how things go with 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 the spread of this virus there's just no question that i think right now this is a world problem and when that's solved then it'll be hockey will be up and running as well once we can establish that we can do things normally again that's the only time that i can see the nhl coming back and being able to do what they're going to do but you know for i jokingly i talked to jake the other day and i jokingly said to him you know because and this was very fresh this is a week ago actually not a few days ago this is right when they kind of said they weren't going to continue games and going to cancel the season for right now, put a pause on it. And I jokingly said to him, listen, I don't, I honestly don't know how long this could be. This could be a week. It could be two weeks, could be three weeks, obviously with more information. Now we know it's going to be a little bit longer, but I jokingly said to him, I said, you're going to have to do the Yarmo Yager workout. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, we had him on after hours a couple of years ago and he used to do a thousand body weight squats a day. So, I mean, if you do that, you're golden. That's pretty much all you'd have to do. Do a little stick handling, you know, little hand drills with a ball and a stick. And you know what? Do a thousand body weight squats a day. Maybe do a few lunges down your apartment back and forth. And let me tell you, when you come back, I guarantee you'll have a jump in your stride. And he started laughing and, you know, he kind of didn't say anything for a little bit. He goes, he used to do a thousand body weight squats a day. I said, yeah, he did. Look at the quads on him. That's the reason the guy could play probably till he's 60. But you know what? I know that for every player, it's different. Every individual is different. I know the, the guys have been, some guys have been working out. Some guys have been training. I think people are in a holding pattern right now, just trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen. I think people realize now that this isn't going to be quick. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be some time. So that's the realization that everybody's uh, aware of now. But uh, from the player's perspective, the only thing that I can compare it to guys, and I've said this before, was the lockout. You know, in 94, um, you know, we came in, we had training camp just like we were supposed to. We had exhibition games just like we were supposed to. We went through the whole exhibition series. And the day that the season was supposed to start, we walked up and the doors were closed. Literally. Like it was like, sorry, guys, you're not allowed to come in the dressing room. And it was a real shock. We knew it was possible. But until it actually happened, you didn't 
you never really planned for. He didn't really think about it. And I do remember that for the first little while, we kind of did what we're doing now. We, you asked a lot of questions. You really didn't know exactly what was going to happen. You didn't understand how long it was going to be. So you kind of went into a pattern where you were waiting and seeing. And back then, believe it or not, it was Bill Ranford on a fax machine that we used <laughs> to get our information from the league. So we would go over to Billy R's house. We would sit down in the basement. And we would wait for this fax to come through to tell us exactly what the next steps were. It was a, <laughs> let's put it this way. It was a sloth mode to say the least, but that's just how we had to do it back then. And, uh, you know, then once we kind of got into a routine, we started to skate, we started to train, we started to get back into it. We started to keep ourselves in condition to when it would start up and we could get back. And then we played a 48 game season. And I believe that it'll be similar for the players now getting long-winded back to your original question. I think that the players right now are in a holding pattern. They're trying to figure things out exactly like everybody on this planet is. And then once things do, if positive, and hopefully they go back to saying, listen, we can now start to have skates and training sessions. They will get back. They will start to work together. And then they'll set a time to start the season. I'm sure that's how it's going to be, whether it's regular season finish up or it's right into the playoffs. I truly don't have any idea what they're going to do there. I think, you know, depending on how long this is, the longer it goes, the likelihood of a regular season to me just seems not possible. I just don't see it possible. But but like I said, there's people in a lot higher places than me to make those decisions, and I'm sure they will and are trying to bring this storm on a daily basis to make sure that when it does come back, if it does, they're going to have a solution for it. And uh, we'll see. The only thing we can do right now is wait and see. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that, again, it ties into what we, we wanted to, to get to on this show. Uh, I, I'm with you. I, I think the regular season is is the lowest priority of, um, you know, if the NHL is able to come back and play some component of this year, the, the remainder of those regular season games to me is the lowest priority. Um, and I, I yep. wanted to ask you about playoff format because I, I don't mind the idea like we've seen s- some people have proposed a, a play in round that that doesn't bother me. Um, I think I'm not even necessarily opposed to, uh, to to shortening some of the early rounds, but I think what the NHL has to do, if it can, is is preserve the seven-game series for the Stanley Cup final. I'm just wondering, when you look at how the playoffs are stru- could be structured, like we're, we all we all don't know, what to you, at, like as a former player, as a broadcaster, as a, as a parent of a current player, what's most important to you? Well, to, I think that the most important thing for me, and I'm just I'm trying to step outside as an analyst, I think, as a player on these respective teams that have battled hard to be number one in the playoff picture, teams that are right on the outside that have played some tremendous hockey to be battling for a spot. There's some teams that are a long ways out of it and have been for a long time. I understand that. But it's the fairness of it. For me, if I had to say the one thing that's important to me is for it to be fair. You have to give teams an opportunity, especially teams that are just on the outside looking in, that are right there, that are trending up. You have to give them an opportunity to, to have to have that chance to be in the playoffs. So you talked about a play-in round. I think that's a must. I really do. I think it has to happen. I think there has to be a situation where you're giving teams that are right there an opportunity with either a one-game elimination or a three-game series, however way you want to do it. I, I, I don't know how that's going to be, but give them an opportunity to get into the final dance and then start the playoffs from there. And I agree with you again on maybe the first round being a five-game series instead of a seven-game series, and that is just strictly to shorten up how long it's going to take to play this out. Yeah, There's going to obviously be a date that they want to have this done by, so if it makes it 
makes more sense to have two rounds of five games, then that's just the way it's going to have to be. And I don't think by looking at that, I truly don't think someone's going to look at that if that was to happen and say that's it's going to be maybe tougher to win that Stanley Cup. I look at that and say that might be a harder Stanley Cup to win because you have everybody coming back. If you're going to give everybody an opportunity, I'm talking even the bottom seeded teams that have no chance of getting there. Are you going to let them have a chance in that play-in series? That's to be decided as well. But probably, you know what, listen, by seeding, you just do it. You set it up. You let them play. That establishes who's into that next round. Top seeds take the weakest seeds and so on and so forth. And you go forward from there. That is going to be a very difficult Stanley Cup to win. I mean, that's going to be no different than a, a regular uh, playoffs. I believe it might even be tougher because, number one, everybody's been off for a while. Everybody's healthy. Everybody has gotten healthy in that time period. And they're ready to get after it. And I think it's going to be, uh, if it happens, that would be just, it'd be outstanding hockey. I really think it would be. Well, I mean, any, anybody would want to watch that that one or three game elimination round. Like, you know, if, if, you're, playoff, well, if you're Winnipeg and your playoffs hinge on on winning one game, I, who, who doesn't want to watch absolutely. that? Absolutely. Right? You know, but you know what? That's a team, that's a prime team. Exactly an example that I was talking about. The Winnipegs of the world, the Columbuses of the world. I mean, teams that have, you know, Philadelphia has been on a tear here. So they're kind of in a whole different uh position now but i mean teams that you know have been scrapping and scraping and fighting to get to that spot there's been some remarkable stories in the league this year from teams that you thought were completely out of it very similar to st louis last year and you know what then there's the teams you know you on the flip side of it my son's team the bruins who have been in first place for a long time um the oilers who have been in a playoff position for the majority of the season for a little short period of time i think they were bumped down a bit but i mean they've been right there all year long they found a way to stick in that hunt i mean this is a huge year for them so i I just again i go back to saying somehow and it's going to be difficult but the league has to find a way to make this as fair as possible and give people a chance and uh, that that would be the number one priority for me and i do believe from what i've been hearing it sounds like that's where they're at as well you can't just cut and say, well, you know what, because you're four points back, you're not going to get it. No way. I mean, there's too many games still left here. And the way that this this season has been, you know, completely uh, <laughs> snakes and ladders, I like to call it, <laughs> you know, because it's just been, you know, that old game snakes and ladders. It's like one second you're up the ladder, one more step and bang, you're right down to the bottom of the division. It seems it's just been incredible how this season has gone up and down for teams. And that's what, what's made it so exciting for us. So I hope that they consider that and, Again, speaking from myself, and if I was a player, I'd say, yeah, you know, these teams deserve a chance to get in there. Give them that chance. So I'm in agreement with with both of you guys, uh, Jonathan and Louis, just in regards to, I mean, the the regular the end of the regular season, especially if you have to come back and, and do some kind of training camp, it it just seems like it will, you know, for for teams, especially like I don't know, like Detroit, it's been out of it since. Uh, officially since the um, the trade deadline, but obviously well before that, to ask them to come back and play 10 games seems kind of uh, pointless. But at the same time, you look at a player and, and that we all know pretty well in terms of watching him, uh, like a Leon Dreisaitl, who's, uh, you know, top you know top of the league in scoring, has been for, for large part, portions of the year, and had a really good chance to have kind of an historic uh, post-2005 uh, lockout type season. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think about about him, uh, Louis? In terms of you know, he, he might get shortchanged a little bit in terms of his, um, you know, historically the type of season that he could have had, and maybe where you think he he could ultimately kind of fare in the uh, in the Hart Trophy debate. Yeah, you know, and that's 
it's really too bad. There's some players that are having remarkable seasons this year and just, you know, and Leon is the one for me. And obviously we see him firsthand a lot here in Edmonton. So we we're right. We've been able to see him develop over the course of his career. And just the player that he's become is, is pretty amazing. Um, I got to see him in junior too. So I watched him quite a bit in junior playing against my son and he was the same way there. You know, I never, I didn't necessarily see that game translating to the NHL that dominantly, but, uh, lo and behold, it has, you know, good on him. He's just continually improved every year. And, you know, I think the most amazing thing about Leon is he's been able to step out from Connor McDavid, who's a pretty hard guy to <laughs> run shotgun with, you know, who's a pretty hard guy to live up to his expectations and what he brings to the table each and every night. I mean, he set the gold standard for what it is. And, I got to credit Leon a lot because he's taken that. And I always remember the comment Todd McClellan said a few years ago. He said, you know, why can't you be better than Connor? Why can't you be the best player on the team? Not maybe, maybe not every night, but half the nights or a quarter of the nights. Why can't you raise your level to where you're the guy that's dragging everybody into the fight? And I really think he's come into his own this year. And especially since he's been separated from Connor, which I think is a huge step in the evolution of this team and the development of this team. Um, being able to have that one-two punch, which we've always talked about. It just has never really seemed to mix. But with Yamamoto coming up and Nugent Hopkins on that line, it's just become a real dominant line. And Connor has still been able to to maintain his pace, um, which is even more incredible. With the wingers that he's had, he's had different guys stepping in there. On, it seems like on a nightly basis, he's had to play with different people. And that's not always easy either. So, um, But Leon, for me, is a Hart Trophy winner. I look at that and I say, if the Edmontoners get into the playoffs, which I believe they would have gotten into the playoffs, and we'll see what happens now with the the season being paused. But hypothetically, if they get into the playoffs, it's the second time in what fourteen years that they're in the playoffs, fifteen years. So I mean, it's a big the big reason they're there, and a large part of that is Leon. You could also say Connor. I mean, Connor has won the Hardy. He's I mean, he's right in that company. But the fact that he's doing it away from Connor now um, for the most part is, is really impressive. And I, I think there's, it's an easy decision for me to, uh, to at least put him in the top three. No question. I mean, there's a hundred percent. He's in the top three and to win it, he's going to lead the national hockey league in scoring. So I think that's incredible too. Well, I, I was glad, I was glad Daniel asked you about the heart because you've got kind of a unique perspective here. Obviously you cover the Oilers a, a lot. So you see McDavid, you see Dreisaitl on a regular basis, but maybe the other great cluster of heart type players is, is Boston where, where your son plays. And, and, uh, yep. you know, you look at Brad Marchand, the season he's having, you look at David Pasternak, who's, who's been a goal scoring, you know, a, a phenom this year. And I, I'm curious how, how you compare those two sets. Cause I, I, I don't know how to weight them. I, I keep going back and forth in my mind, and, and then I throw some other players in the mix too, but but I, I'm never sure whether I want to have Marchand ahead of Pasternak or Pasternak ahead of Marchand because they're, they're both such phenomenal yeah. talents. The one thing that I look at too, and maybe it's just in, you know, I don't want to break it down like this, but what I'm bra- how I'm breaking it down this year, like when I looked at this, because I've been asked this question before, David Pasternak, you know, he's got 95 points. 48 goals, I believe, is what he still has right around there. He's a couple away from 50, which, again, is another real sad thing to see a yeah. guy that gets that close to 50, but this season doesn't doesn't continue. He's not going to get there. And I just, you know, that's a remarkable season. And just, you know, personally, that's just a real tough, tough uh, pill to swallow when you know he's going to get it in 10 games left in the season. But anyway, 
I look at Leon and the reason for me saying Leon over a guy like Pasternak, McKinnon is a guy that certainly steps into that conversation for me too. Um, Connor is always in that conversation. No matter what you say and no matter how well Leon Dreisaitl plays, Connor each and every night is a dominant player. And it's why it's made them such a great one-two punch. But is the center position is the center position for me. I look at what he's done. He was playing wing and then boom, once he goes over to center, he just took off. And for me, that's okay. Now you're controlling the line. You're dragging guys into the fight with you. He's also an excellent penalty killer, the defensive side of the game. I know people will talk about plus minus, but it's who he's playing against, the situations he's in, open net goals against. I mean, there's a lot of things that play into that. But for me, the comment from Dave Tippett, which has been multiple times this year, asked you know about Leon Dreisel and he says listen when there's a job to be done on the ice and I'm looking down the bench more often than not that's the guy I'm kicking in the butt to go out there and do the job that to me is a complete player that's a player that's playing in all situations no matter what the score is whatever you need done he's capable of going out and doing it and that's the sign to me of Harwin yeah does that make sense it's 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 an interesting perspective because I like I I, I almost feel bad penalizing wingers relative to relative to Absolutely, centers. Absolutely, I do, and that's why I said that cautiously because I look at that and I say, a guy like Artemi Panarin. I mean, the yeah. game he played in here on New Year's Eve. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, he was <laughs> <laughs> that third period was all world. I mean, he was outstanding every single time that guy touched the puck. It was look out, and I, I mean, he put on a display, and he's having a remarkable season too. So. I never want to discredit any of that. And that's the only reason that I'm saying that right now. I can tell you this. I can tell you this, that if you had 30 seconds left in the game and you were up by one goal and it was game seven of the Stanley Cup final, would you put Leon Dreisaitl on the ice or Temi Panarin? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting. You're down by a goal. You don't need one. Yeah. 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 It, 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 I mean, how, how do you not put Dreisaitl on for the face-off, right? Like, uh, exactly. That's yeah. that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's just kind of how now. I'm pretty sure Nathan McKinnon would be on there too. Connor yeah. McDavid would probably be on the ice as well. Like, I mean, that's a great list. It's a great list of players, and that's the best thing is that they're all amazing players. But uh, I know who I'm picking there. The way he's <laughs> played this year, that's the guy I'm putting on the ice. So, Louis, uh, we, I just wanted to backtrack to something you said earlier, and I, I really enjoyed your story about uh, going to Billy Ranford's house and 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 getting um, getting the faxes for you know for for updates on on the lockout and, and th- things of that nature. Um, but Jonathan and I, we wrote a piece today about the uh, Oilers uh, that that could or, or should uh, maybe have their numbers either retired or honored by the team, and uh, obviously Ranford's name came up in that that article, but. Now you you kind of missed the the late '80s uh, Oilers years, the kind of the dynasty years, but unfortunately, uh, you did obviously, unfortunately for your sake, <laughs> your your hand would your hand would be uh, weighed yeah. down a little bit uh, there, but um, yeah. but you did play with some some great players, and I'm just curious if you you know if if you wanted to wade into that uh, discussion at all, and if there's any kind of player that sticks out for you in terms of a guy who could, should either have his number honored or retired, or or even failing that a favorite uh, teammate that you you had in your your years in Edmonton. Oh, that's a good question. You know, I can tell you this coming in as a 20 year old stepping on board. I was welcome with open arms, which which to me, when I look back at it, was really, really impressive. But that's probably what made them such a strong team and a close team for so many years. The players that were still around that had won, you know, Kevin Lowe had won five cups. Um, You know, for me, 
they didn't treat you any different than anybody else. And I just, I just felt that was, you know, when I stepped on, I never felt any type of you're a rookie, you need to do this. You would do it because if they asked you to do anything, you respected them so much that you would just do it. But um, I was treated as one of them right from the get go. And I always appreciated that. And I always looked up to them for that. And I always felt that that was the sign of a really strong team. They were comfortable enough in their own skin that whoever came on board, they knew that for them to have success, we need to welcome these new players on board and make sure they're on the same page as everybody else. Now, if you didn't get on page, if you didn't get on track, you didn't last very long. And that's that's the same with, if you look at the Detroit Red Wings, there were Ken Holland came from, they tried a lot of different people over the years in that organization. There were some that stuck and played a long time for that organization. And there were guys that went in there and didn't last very long because they just didn't step in there and, and buy into the, what they were trying to do. Um, but yeah, Kevin Lowe sticks out for me. I remember a long a story, you know, I had separated a shoulder. Um, I can't remember what stage of the season, but it was, you know, after a couple of months or three months into the season, it was at the old Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, which had boards that were like a brick wall, very similar to Northlands. And you know what? I went in and try and hit, um, trying to think of who it was. It was um, Jim Sandlack, actually, is who it was. And he jumped out of the way. I hit the board, separated my shoulder. So I was kind of coming in late to my medical. I thought it was no big deal. I thought I was on the mend. So I'm, you know, coming to the rink a little bit late, walking in there. How's everybody doing? Waiting for guys. And Kenny Lowe, Kevin's brother, you know, it was. I could tell he was getting a little agitated with me about something. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, well, listen, I told you to be here at this time. He goes, when you're not here at this time, then my whole schedule gets set back. So when I tell you to be here at a certain time, you better be here at a certain time. So Kevin, who was also dealing with a shoulder injury at the time, pulled me aside and said, listen, he explained the whole situation to me. Like you have to, this guy's got a lot of guys he's dealing with. We're, we're important, but we're the least important right now because we're not options for the lineup. And then he said, what are you doing to work out? And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm kind of just waiting. He goes, well, you've got to stay in remarkable shape to get back in the lineup here. So he took me into the gym afterwards, and that was the first time that I ever did a real bike ride. And I got to tell you guys, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. We did, I don't know how many sprints we did that that day, but it was like a 50-minute hard sprinting all-out ride. And I literally was like, what was that? And he said, that's how hard you have to train. That's how hard you have to train to be ready for when you get your opportunity to go back in the lineup. And uh, I'll never forget that. You know, that always stuck with me. It was like, wow, that was a real message. And we skated together on the ice that time. But but we had a ton of those guys. You know, I look around. Mark Lamb was a guy that took me under his wing right away. You know, you step in there. Kelly Buckberger, you know, was just another great guy when you stepped in. was just terrific um, to welcome you on the team. Craig McTavish. So Bucky and, and Mac T were my line mates on that line. And they just looked after you. Even though I was a tough guy, they, you still needed guidance. You still needed to know where you needed to go on the ice at certain times. And they weren't afraid to tell you in a fairly strict way, but in a teaching way. And you could tell that's why they were a great team and why they ended up, uh, we ended up going that year to the conference final. I wasn't around for it, but that was, you know, still, even without the great players, Messier, Gretzky, Curry, and you know, all these players that had left, Anderson, you know, the list goes on, Fuhrer. The team still made it to the conference final based off of those principles of what how they had played for so many years. They just knew how to win. They knew what it took, and they knew how to dig deep. And you see that now with great teams. They just they have an ability to play their best hockey when it matters. And I'll never forget that because 
I heard all the stories that you guys heard. I've heard them multiple times, but I never get tired of hearing them. I never get tired of hearing them because I love them. They're great stories. Like when, when, when Gretz comes back into town and you're sitting around, you're socializing, Paul Coffey, all these guys get together. I just love to sit there and be a fly on the wall and listen to the stories because from a hockey player's perspective, that to me is what it's all about. You know, that to me is why they were champions. Everybody talks about how great of players they were, but when it mattered is when they played their best. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, it's probably a good thing that Kevin Lowe's not not uh, your Peloton instructor then, uh, based on well, what <laughs> probably have no problem us. with that ride yesterday. He was, you know what? <laughs> I've never seen a guy play through more pain in my life. I know that, uh, you know, um, his brother had a comment about uh, uh, who was it? Smith, um, Jason Smith, that said, you know, he's got the pain threshold of a cadaver. Well, his brother wasn't much different. I, I saw Kevin Lowe play through things that I'm telling you right now, not many people can play through. So that's that to me. And, there, and you know what? That was the other thing that back then Kelly Buckberger was the same way. Craig McTavish, you know, had that Ironman streak going be, before it was broke. Those guys didn't miss games. They didn't they didn't miss unless it was a really severe injury. They played through everything and uh, just a different time. It was a different time, different mentality. And guys were, you know. It was, uh, there's still guys like that today, though. Don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of players like that today in the league. And obviously with the information we know now about head injuries, I would never want to see anybody play through those. So, but as far as bumps and bruises, it was just game on, let's go suck it up. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of guys, you know, there's a lot of guys for me back then that uh, were instrumental in those Stanley cup wins, um, that, uh, I got to learn a lot from, I got to sit around and pick their brain about stuff and listen to them. And it was just a, it was a really cool time for a 20 year old to step on board. As I said, I would have liked to have been a two or three years earlier, maybe been involved in some of those cups, <laughs> but, um, you know what, like, like I said, I've heard all those stories and I, it never gets old to me. Uh, NHL Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly uh, joined Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on the two-man advantage this week. So I uh, just wanted to remind listeners to check that out at theathletic.com. A lot of, lot of interesting things about how the NHL might proceed in, in the wake of everything we're, we're seeing today and uh, over this last, last couple of weeks here. Um, Louis, you were, you were talking about you know the, some of the the tougher players you've you've played with i i know you were you're also on teams with uh people like mike greer people like brian marchment was there is there one guy in particular who really stood out to you in terms of his ability to handle pain or was it just sort of you know that generation that's just how they how they played yeah you know you brought up a couple great guys you know mike greer was my roommate his first year in the league just a tremendous human being and you know, he was a beast when he came into. He used to just run over people. I mean, he was he was a juggernaut. He literally was a juggernaut. He really was. You know, when, once he got in motion, good luck. He was plowing through you. Um, Brian Marshman's one of the tougher guys I ever played with, and I mean mentally too. That guy, uh, and, and no disrespect to much because he'll admit it too, but when you see that guy in the dressing room out of his gear, you look at him and go, seriously? Like, like I mean, your ankles <laughs> – are smaller than my wrists, you know, like, I'm like, what, like, what, how are you not broken in half out there? But he would go out there and absolutely crush people and then drop the gloves with the likes of Tony twist or it didn't matter. He didn't care. He was, you know what? One of the toughest human beings I've ever seen. And, and he was mean. I'm not going to deny the fact that some of his hits weren't over the line. They were definitely over the line. And, uh, 
you know, we used to even shake our head in the bench and go, oh, my God. I remember we were in Carolina <laughs> one night. I can't remember who we hit. And Stu Grimson was chasing him around the ice. So I went out there. This is when we were playing in Tampa together. And I went out there and tried to fight Stu. And he says, I'm not letting you fight his battle for him. And I said, well, Stu, I go, that's my job. I got to come out here and, and do this. I'm sorry, but I can't let you just chase him around. And he's like, he's got to know better. He can't do that. And it was kind of funny having that conversation with Stu Grimson, who was a scary individual himself. But you know what? Mush didn't care. Mush didn't care. Kelly Buckberger was of the same cut right from the same cloth. It was like, you know what? He didn't care. I have a funny story about Kelly Buckberger I've told before. So Glenn Sather was big on fighting at the right time. He didn't like his guys to go out there and just drop the gloves off the face off, which happened on occasion. And I had a bunch of those in my career too. It was just, it was a tone setter early. Maybe you can get an early advantage or maybe an old score you're trying to settle. But he kind of wanted you to play the game and then fight at the right time. So we were up in the game against the Flames and Sandy McCarthy, who I'd had multiple fights with and didn't do very well against, by the way, but he, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he wanted to fight me and I knew he was going to come and fight me. So I went in and had Barry Stafford do the Dave Brown thing on me. I had him spray down my arm with pledge, which would make it slippery. And I was all ready to put a little Vaseline <laughs> on my face. I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready for war here. I'm going out here to drop the gloves with Sandy McCarthy again. And Slatsy knew it. So he came in and he did his little pre-period speech and he looked at me and he said, hey, he goes, you're not fighting that guy. Do not fight him. Last week, okay, they were up on us and he wouldn't fight you. They turned a cheek. You're turning a cheek right now. And I was like, oh, no, what do I do now? <laughs> like, okay. So Sandy kind of chased me around the ice a little bit. And I'm trying to explain to him in a kind of nicely but not so politely way that I'm not fighting him right now. And uh, he dropped his gloves, okay, which is the ultimate test. Like, it's like a guy drops his gloves on the ice, 20,000 people know that he wants to fight. It's like, what are you supposed to do now? And Bucky skated by and slashed him in the bare hand. (laughs) 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 Uh, But that was Bucky. You know, Bucky was like, you know what? He, uh, great guy to have with you on your side because if anything went down, he was a guy you wanted in that scrap with you. So I always respected him for that. He turned himself into a great player. Turned himself into a 20-goal scorer, excellent penalty killer, would do anything for the team, played over a 1,000 games, had a tremendous career, and, uh, yeah, he was a good guy to have on your side. So, Louie, <laughs> I'm going through your, your hockey fights list right now, and, you know, I'm seeing a lot of Jody Shelley, you know, Darian Hatcher, Nathan Parrott, uh, Aaron Asham, Jeff Audris, and, you, you know, you mentioned a couple of guys, too. Uh, who, who's maybe the, the toughest guy or the, you know, the, the, the guy that you hated lining up uh, against, uh, or dropping the gloves with, I should say. Yeah. You know what? Sandy's one of them for sure. Sandy McCarthy always said was probably my toughest test. I had a great fight with him. The first one, excuse me. And then my last one was okay against him. The, the bunch in the middle weren't so good. So I don't know how many it was in in entirety. I want to say maybe five or six times I fought him, maybe seven. I'm not even sure. And then, uh, you know what? I always say back to the division rivals. I fought Gino Ojek a ton of times. I fought Marty McSorley yeah. a ton of times. I mean, those are the guys that I was seeing on a nightly basis. Yeah. I always remembered one guy that always kind of freaked me out, though, and I don't know if it was more because of the name than anything. I fought him in Winnipeg one night was Sean the Barbarian Cronin. Sean Cronin. <laughs> and uh, he was a big, strong guy, lefty too, but – yeah, I, I would have to give the edge to McSorley or, or McCarthy for that matter, just because I had, and Gino. I had so many battles with those guys that uh, I did okay in some, didn't do okay in some. It was kind of just the way it went back then. You weren't going to win them all with uh, the likes of the players that were in the league. You uh, 
you were going to have a win-loss column, no question about it. Yeah, yeah just for you and for our listeners, uh, Marty McSorley, six f- uh, fights against him. Uh, Gino Jeff, five. Uh, Jeff Rogers and Sandy McCarthy, four each. So those were your... Those were your uh, your most uh, most seen combatants for sure. What uh, website are you looking at? This is hockeyfights.com. I fought McCarthy more than that. Oh, I fought him twice in one game. It, that might just be regular season numbers, Daniel. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah we're I'm doing not kind sure. of I a, just know. Fact, checking, fact checking <laughs> on the fly here. Sandy, if I had to guess, Gino and Sandy would probably be the most. But... That's just what I remember, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah you're right. Maybe not exhibition too. We definitely fought an exhibition. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's, I've never it's, gone it's... back. And you know, that was the other thing too. It wasn't like today where every fight's on YouTube where you could see it and you yeah. hadn't. Uh... You know, my parents. You know, back in the day, they could only watch me on Saturday night in Hockey Night in Canada. Very rarely would they ever get to see us play. Um, it was just the way it was. Every game wasn't televised like it is now. So it was. Uh, just a different time. We didn't have the scouting reports on players, so a new guy would come up and you'd be like, what does this guy even do? Like, is he a lefty? Is he a righty? Like, is he tough? Is he a player? I remember when George Peros first came in the league even. He's coming from Princeton. He was skating for Manchester. I was down in the American Hockey League. And here's this big six-foot-five guy flying around out there in warm-up. And back then, he had short hair, didn't have the mustache. He was clean-shaven. So <laughs> you look at him and go, wow, the way he's skating, this guy's, this guy's flying around out there. And as it turns out, he went back and taught himself how to fight that year and came in and, and, and started to drop gloves on a regular basis and carved out an amazing career, which is pretty impressive. I think that's probably the toughest thing ever to do is we had juniors, junior B, junior A, minor leagues to get yourself ready to start scrapping the heavyweights in the NHL. He came in and just started real late but was able to carve out a pretty, uh, pretty amazing career doing that job. So I, I give him a lot of credit for that. It's it's incredible to imagine. It's it's such a such a different time. I mean, even like the the idea that you'd face a guy, you know, five or six times, it, it doesn't happen anymore. It's a it's a it's a different game and uh, uh, certainly certainly a different era. Um, we we want to thank you so much for for joining us on the show today. Uh, that's Louis DeBrusque from Hockey Night in Canada. Some some fantastic uh, stories from his, his time as a player and some some great perspective on the current situation. Um, please don't forget to rate and subscribe to the oil can on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash the oil can, you can get 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. On behalf of uh, Daniel Nugent-Bowman, I'm Jonathan Willis, and thanks so much for listening to us today.